Welcome again to Hiawatha, like uh, Chris and Peter both said. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are going to dive right in to our sermon series right now on the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're visiting, just catch up speed a little bit on where we are in this book. If you're newer to the scriptures, to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And it tells, like the other three Gospels, the theological history of Christ's birth and his early ministry, his more substantial ministry of healing and speaking in parables and teaching and building the story to the cross. And then the meat of all of the Gospels, the whole, the scriptures, is the cross and the empty tomb. And if you're new to the Bible, that's a huge encouragement for you guys and how you read the Bible is always read it as though that's in mind because it certainly is for Christ and always for God as he ultimately authors all of the scriptures, all the Bible, is the climax of the whole story is the cross. It's where God dies for sinful people like us. And it's the empty tomb when he slays death in our place. So sin and the, the sting of sin, the ultimate punishment for sin, which is death. He slays that two-headed dragon, essentially, sin and death for us. So that's the climax. And we're still pre-cross in this portion of Matthew. We're in chapter 13. Uh, so Jesus here is still engaging in ministry for those three years between his commissioning, his baptism, his anointing with the Holy Spirit, and then his uh, trial and his betrayal and his crucifixion and then his resurrection. So we're still in that middle portion of time, but today is going to begin, we're calling actually this middle series, this middle section of the Bible, or the Gospel of Matthew, the the declaring and demonstrating of the gospel or good news of the kingdom of God. So what what is God's kingdom? What is salvation? What does that mean? And he's declaring that, and he's demonstrating that through love and good deeds and miracles. So there's a way to demonstrate the fact that God loves us through his son. There's a way to demonstrate the cross ahead of time. And there's a way to declare it explicitly, and he's doing both. He's going to declare it more explicitly as time goes on here, uh, but we're not quite there yet. He has in different ways, but he's going to do it even more right on the cusp of that. Uh, but today we're going to do, so there's the greater series, the sub-series I just talked about, and then kind of a sub-series of that, <laughs> not to get too confusing, but this uh, sub-series of this other sub-series that we're on right now, or starting today, it's going to be a six-week series on the parables. So all of Matthew chapter 13 are specific teachings of Christ that we call the parables, Uh, If you're newer to those, uh, the parables, uh, definitionally, are proverbial word picture teachings about the nature of the kingdom of God. So God is here. God has arrived. In other words, Jesus is all about this. He's announcing his own arrival. God, all the prophets predicted this. All the Old Testament scriptures anticipated God's love for sinful people. He was going to restore creation back to himself. And it was phrased around this idea of God's kingdom. So he's king. And he's going to do all all the things that good kings do. He's going to slay the enemies of his people. He's going to give them a home, an inheritance. He's going to provide for them. All this stuff he's doing spiritually through Christ. And and Christ is the fulfillment of it. He's that ultimate king. Uh, So the parables then are these teachings, but they're a bit more proverbial, a little more hidden, but they teach about God's kingdom. They teach about the nature of it. So the nature of salvation and our response to it, what it's like in different kinds of ways. A lot of them are agrarian metaphors we're going to see today. As you can imagine, the first century is a common way for people to speak, and it was just something that Jesus could look at on the side of the road and say, the kingdom of God is like that, or I'm like that, or you're like that. And it's a way to teach with a physical object about a spiritual reality. So we'll see a lot of that. And to give you some framework of where we're headed then, today we're going to talk about the first of the parables, one of the more famous ones, the parable of the sower, and the explanation of that parable which Jesus gives. So he teaches that parable to the masses, the crowds, Then a little bit later, he explains it privately to his disciples. He explains the meaning behind it. So that's today. Uh, So it's a split passage. And next week, in between those two passages, is the rationale behind Jesus speaking in parables at all. His disciples just ask him, why do you speak in parables? Why are you hiding some of these truths from some people and explaining explaining them privately to to us and, and others? 
And he explains that. So it's a really tough issue to wrestle with. We're going to talk about that, though. Why Jesus had to hide truth from some and reveal it to others in this portion of, of biblical history. And why he doesn't speak in parables, or why the church doesn't speak in parables after the cross. The reason for that. Partially, some things are partially being revealed, becoming more clear here pre-cross, but after the cross, uh, the parables are clear, and the church just engages in much more clear ministry and talking specifically and explicitly about the nature of the kingdom and the cross. So we'll explain all that next week, and then the following weeks will just be more parables. So that's basically the next six weeks, to give you a heads up where we're headed. So today is uh, Matthew 13, 1 to 9, and also verses 18 to 23. Like I said, it's a split passage. Let's read it in full, though, to begin, and we'll come back and talk about it from two angles. Verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. All right, so kind of nicely it explains the parable, right? It's just some, we don't always have this uh, with parables in general, but also other teachings, but, you know, almost don't have to preach it. Jesus just explains what it is, right? So we'll just, let's just say amen. No, we'll talk about it. Uh, but let's, let's go on here. One thing before we move on to a couple of specific angles I want to talk about today, we'll look at these four soil types here in a minute, but... I want to talk about this idea of, and we, we reference this here frequently at Hiawatha because especially when we're in narrative passages, uh, genre of Scripture becomes helpful. The early church did this a lot, and I think it's very helpful to approach the Scriptures this way. And that was uh, from a divine perspective and a human perspective. And so we were back in Jonah, for example. We preached through Jonah, uh, the prophet, a few years ago. We talked about this a lot. I think it was most helpful or especially helpful with a book like that. But also here in the parables in this, again, narrative genre of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. But the idea behind it is that like Jesus is both fully God, 100% God and fully human, 100% human, the incarnation we call that, God becoming a human being, not looking like a human being for a while, actually becoming human. Like Jesus is fully God and fully human and is called the Word biblically, so does the written Word, the Bible, take on both dimensions many times in scriptures, a lot of times at the exact same time. So when you read passages, again, not every passage is exactly the same in this, in this manner, but a lot of times it's helpful to do that, is to look at a passage from a human perspective. So in other words, a passage will call us to response. It'll express the human experience or the human condition in a way. We can see ourselves in it. 
great example of this is King David in the Old Testament, uh, who was a psalmist as well. He wrote a lot of psalms, and a lot of times when you read the psalms, they express the human heart, the human condition. We can see ourselves in his experience. But then, from a slightly different angle, at the exact same time, you look at it and say, that sounds a lot like Christ. And his experiences are resembling the Messiah, the ultimate David, who would come later in history. And both are true. It'd be, it'd be wrong and, and limiting of us interpretationally to say it can only mean one. It means two. Uh, the word it has this human aspect and this uh, also this divine aspect as well. So that call to response embodies the human experience, but also it can show off a Savior at the same time. And I think Matthew 13, this parable, we'll see this play out as the gospel goes ahead too, but this parable is one of those places where we have to see both. The human side is a much more common understanding of the parable. It's very important. We'll talk about that first. The divine side's not quite as obvious and something not talked about quite as much, but it is the heart of the good news. The God, it, show, it displays a Savior in sower and farmer form here that is worthy of adoration and bending the knee to and calling Jesus King and Lord and, and finding rest in that. So that's going to come later. We're going to start, though, with this human angle on it then first. So this horizontal human call to response, this call to self-examine and look at the condition of our heart. It's basically what's going on here is the soil types represent human hearts, Jesus says. And so it's a call to, a call to that. So the challenge, and the more challenging, more exhortative human side of this, uh, we, the, to begin there, we have to address the question, what's being sown? And Jesus addresses that. The, fir- the first part of the parable just begins with, a sower went out to sow, to sow seed. And later in the explanation part, Jesus says, the seed is the word of the kingdom. And the word of the kingdom is the same. It's synonymous with the gospel of the kingdom used elsewhere uh, in the gospel of Matthew to denote good news that Jesus preaches, that God has arrived to forgive sins and to heal and to gather lost sheep back to himself. Or in other pre-cross terms, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the sign of Jonah. So like the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus says, so will I fulfill that. I will be in the belly of the tomb or the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but I will come up, up and out of it. I will resurrect. Like Jonah was resurrected, essentially, out of that fish. I'm going to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate Jonah, uh, who will come forth from the tomb. So he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the resurrection in that capacity, but in in a kind of shadowy way. Also, he talked about bringing people to himself to give them rest. He said, come to me if you're weary and you're burdened, and I will give you rest. But he qualifies it, rest for souls. And in context there, he's forgiving sins, healing paralytics, but also going to the core issue, which is internal, and saying, I forgive you of your sins, even before he heals physically. Really, ultimately, all healings are about the heart. And so he's forgiving sins as well. All these things are anticipating the cross. They're building ahead because that's where forgiveness and healing and the ultimate power of God is manifest. Without the cross, none of those healings, those, those declarations of forgiveness or promises of rest are actually going to come to fruition. He's building the story ahead to, head to that. It's coming in in a little way. It's at hand, but it's not fully here, fully here yet. So on this side of the cross, then we can get much more clear and just say, A sower is sowing seed, and the seed is the good news that God has come to die for sinners and make his enemies, us, his friends. That's what's being sown here. And in pre-cross ways, a little bit shadowy, granted, but on this side of the cross, we can look back with much more clarity and say, yeah, that's what's ultimately in the ministry of Christ on the cross, in the post-cross apostolic ministry. That's That's what's preached. It's always what's preached. God has come to our rescue and has set up his kingdom. So that's the seed. The seed of the fact that he's God and he has arrived. 
Then, like I said before, so all of this then elicits response. It always does. Even right here today, as we talk about the gospel like we do every Sunday, it always elicits response and different types of response. Like, and like it happens every week, like it's happening here in Matthew 13, it's going to happen here today too in my heart and all of our hearts. Something, response is going to happen. It's impossible not to respond. We cannot do anything with it. But as we see here, that's one of the responses. To not respond is to have a hard-pathed heart. And that is technically a response to the statement, the way back to God, the way into the kingdom of God is through Christ and Christ alone. So let's look at those four soil types, the four responses. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way, as well. There are other ways to respond to the gospel than these four neat categories, but they are major ones. And so it's worthy just of looking at and saying, which of these four is reflective of my heart currently, was in my past? How are these things threatening me? It's possible that some of you might think two of these soil types are a special threat to me. So don't think necessarily that I have to be one of these soil types in particular for all of my life. You know, you might be in one, one of the bad soil types, and, and today God is saying to you, repent, I've died for that. Come to me and be that, that final number four good soil type. I will cultivate that in your heart. Or you might feel like you are a good soil type, you are a Christian, a true Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian, but you feel threatened. You feel like the thorns are surrounding you. It doesn't mean you are that soil type necessarily with the thorns, but you can feel the threat of them still too. So have that broader perspective in mind as we go through this. But with that said, let's unpack exactly what these mean with Christ's explanation and bring in a little bit of a greater wealth of Scripture here too. So the first is the path, the hard path, which isn't really soil at all. It's just hard clay. When anyone hears, verse 19 again, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So this is just the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached to a hard heart. It's heard, but it's not received. And when this occurs, Jesus says, the devil becomes active in snatching up whatever semblance of gospel resided at all in the hearer's heart in that, in that moment. The Bible is clear. We can hear things, and faith does come from hearing, but we have to hear and receive the gospel. We have to put root down into it to draw from the nutrients in a persevering manner all throughout our days, the nutrients of grace throughout our life. John 1, 12 to 13, another one of the gospels gets at that. It says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to all who receive them into the heart, Bible's big on the heart as the center of, of the human uh, you know, conscience, that the heart was where our, our affections really flowed out of. And so the heart is addressed a lot, either as a hard thing or ultimately in Christ a soft thing. But here it's hard. But the Bible says you have to hear and receive. And this, by the way, is what differentiates us from the demons. Christ did not become an angel to save an angel. He became a human being to save human beings, first of all. It's a huge difference. But with that said, demons understand the concepts of the gospel. They understand that they obviously believe in the existence of God. But what makes a Christian different is they actually put all their chips in on Jesus and say, I'm all in. He's everything. I trust him and him alone completely to save me. I believe it was sufficient to save me from my sins. Demons don't do that. But a person can still hear the gospel and still, like a demon, respond with a hard heart by not trusting in that to save. James, uh, one of the other New Testament authors, gets at this by, by acknowledging that, that the demons believe in God. You know, so what makes us different? It's that kind of idea. So Christians then, so faith comes from hearing, but hearing and ultimately receiving, putting down root, 
as the metaphor goes on here, uh, not just hearing. But if we do just hear, it's just hard path. And we're all there. And just to be clear, we are all hard-hearted. We'll come back to this in a little bit as well. But the Bible says clearly, from almost every vantage point imaginable, that we have hard hearts that need to be softened by God. So until we're Christian, we're all here. We all have the hard path. And for some of you, the first time you heard the gospel, you believed. For some of you, it took 30 times, 100 times. For others of you, you're still in that place where you're hearing but not truly understanding yet and allowing it to take root in your life. All right, so that is, uh, that's the first thing. With this first type, it's a total loss. There's no reception whatsoever. It doesn't mean there's a negative response to the gospel. It just means that they fail to respond and, and let it take root. One last thing I think is interesting here, too. It's a bit of an aside, uh, but I think what we see here, too, in the parable with uh, the birds, which are metaphorical for the devil, is we see a bit into what the mission of the devil is and a bit into what is of ultimate importance for the church. Because the seed is the word. The seed is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The seed is preached. There's nothing here of lifestyle said. The, the, the birds don't come and snatch a particular lifestyle up. They come and snatch away something that is preached to them, formally or informally, something that is read out of the Bible. So of utmost importance for us as Christians is the word of God, the Bible. Understanding what God says to us through it. And the activity of, of Satan, you could say, not that it's completely descriptive of his, of his activity in the world, but a main part to it is snatching away the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ from people's ears. And before it takes root, it might start to matter, but before it does, because it's a hard path and, and rejected by the person, the devil becomes active and takes it away before it can actually really matter to a person and become the most important thing in their life. All right, we'll end that sidebar there. Second one, that's the first thing, the hard path. Second one is the rocky ground. In verse 20 and 21, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is the person that hears the word of the gospel and is quick to receive it, almost in an emotion, too, almost overly emotional kind of way. But because he has no root, and the sun rises, the sun of persecution and, and trial, uh, it's scorched. So uh, trial, uh, per, it says here on account of the word, it could be general trial, it could be persecution for being a Christian on whatever level. Uh, but for this type of person, it's just not worth it. Uh, the suffering, the, just the general trial of sharing in a fallen world, uh, but the specific trial of being persecuted for being a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ is too much. And it's not worth it. And so they don't endure. They don't persevere. And because they don't persevere and go on in the faith, uh, they are listed here as having a shallow root. They're, they're not really believing in ultimately a true gospel. It's evidenced by the lack of fruit. Uh, one particular place in the Bible you see this addressed by Christ uh, elsewhere, actually. Revelation 2, 9 to 10, Jesus speaks to the church and gives a lot of great exhortation. This is to one church in particular. I want to read this for context. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus says, you're going to suffer a lot. Uh, most people think that Jesus is saying here, by the end of the ten days, he's referring to death. You're going to suffer for ten days, and you will ultimately be killed. 
But he's saying, be faithful unto death. Trust in me all the way. Put me over comfort. Put me over death itself. Put me over all of earthly treasures, and you'll receive the crown of life. But going back to the rocky ground, basically that's not what rocky ground individuals do. They just aren't faithful unto death. There are lots of forms of persecution and trial, but at the end of the day, they're not putting that root down deep. If we did, the flip side of this again is if we put the root down deep to draw from the nutrients of grace, the moisture of the gospel, if people do that, then they basically say Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient. Like trials are very difficult and, and to walk through that valley with God with, but at the end of the day, the fact that he loves me and he's died for my sins forever and I have eternal life with God that can never be taken away, that actually trumps all of my suffering and pain, even death itself, torture for the sake of being a Christian, which happens every day around the world. Like that's actually worth it. So to put that root down deep is to draw from that and to prioritize Christ over comfort, Christ over persecution, Christ over uh, tribulation. But it could be anything. It could be actually just grumbling too for the sake of being infertile as a couple or not having work or grumbling against uh, some issue at work relationally with someone else. Whatever it might, it could be just something like that that's leading you to grumble. And when the Bible says, when people grumble, it's basically synonymous with saying Jesus isn't enough. He's not enough for me in that moment. So Philippians 2 is big on this, as well as uh, many instances in the Old Testament where Israel grumbled when God's salvation and delivering them from Egypt wasn't sufficient. They wanted to go back. So the Bible speaks into that and says, is he enough? For rocky ground people, he's not. He's just not. And so trial then, the scorching sun of trial and persecution on account of the word is too much, and they wither up, and they fall away from Christ. It's just not worth it. The third soil type has thorns in it. So in verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. So if the former type of soil was about hardship, this one's the opposite. This is the other side of the same coin. This is about comfort and riches and just good things in life being a threat to Christians to ultimately lead them away from Jesus. So first things about hardship and trial. The flip side of that same coin, though, it's the same coin of threat. The flip side of that is, again, in a special way, putting comfort on the throne of our life and worshiping it and it being more important. Spin on this, though, from Revelation 3, 15 to 19, another one of the churches in that same context with Revelation 2 that Jesus speaks to. This is really helpful. A very apt description, I think, of our culture today. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and turn and repent. So I love this because it just gets very clear, especially as we weave in Revelation 3 here with Matthew 13. It's very clear. The gospel says we are wretched, blind, pitiable, and poor spiritually. That's the state of affairs of all of humankind before a holy God. And the way to be rich spiritually before him is to buy from him, to buy from Christ, to buy from the cross, 
to buy gold, to buy white clothing, to buy salve, to be healed, to be, to be cleansed from all of our sins, the darkest corners of our heart Christ died for. That's the way to be rich. But you see, this church here had, had lost that. They're not necessarily unsaved yet. They just lost. When sin gets low for us and, and not as well-defined, when it gets small, the grace of God gets small as well. So the gospel says that. It paints a picture of basically a rotting corpse of a person before Jesus. The only way, the only way to be saved is for God to speak to that corpse and say, live. We're blind, we're wretched, we're pitiable, and we're poor. That's what the gospel says. Christ saves, that's, that's us, and the glories of Christ are defined there as well. The world says the opposite. The world basically says, even if you're not rich, you're rich in the sense that you're a pretty good person, right? We hear that all the time. It's a, one of the mantras of our culture. You're a pretty good person. Not perfect. A few people say they're perfect, but most people think they're pretty good. Baseline, before God, we're a pretty good starting point. And so, and we work hard. We work hard for our jobs, for things that we buy, and we're pretty comfortable. And so we might not be rich, rich, some of us are, but we probably aren't. We're just, we have some things that give us comfort. And they could be seen on one angle as good gifts from God, good things that he gives to us, not inherently sinful things, but when they become God things and things that we worship or either confuse the matter of sin by blinding us from our spiritual state, like Jesus says to this church right here in Revelation 3. That's the problem with the thorns of riches, the deceitfulness of riches, is they can subtly undergird the truth of the gospel, the pre-gospel, which is that we're lost sinners. Because when we're comfortable, the doctrine or the statement that you're a pretty good person isn't too far behind. You're okay. You're doing pretty well. You work hard at your job. You make a pretty, you created that. You wrote that book. You're getting that paycheck. Whatever it is, uh, the, the Sin and a wrong under, biblical understanding of sin in our place before God is closely related to just a lot of comfort. That's the threat. And this is a much bigger threat in the American church than the prior one. There's rocky soil type stuff, all in, it's scorching sun type stuff all over the place too, for sure, in America. But especially in a, just an age of comfort, this is choking out cr- true Christians' faith all over the place. All over the place. What are the thorns? Here, here's how the word confronts us here. What are those thorns? Do we believe the gospel and the pre-gospel statements of we're wretched, blind, pitiable, and poor, or do we think we're like this church was, we're pretty well off, like we're rich. We're... Jesus is basically taking a pretty good person and making him a better version of himself. A lot of Christians believe that rather than Jesus is raising the dead. That's the gospel. This is moralism and religion. He's not making good people better. He's making dead people live. Huge difference, but crucial. If you're over here, you're not thinking like a biblical Christian. You're a zillion miles away from the cross. If you're over here, you're right on. But this is where we, we, can, we can get if we're too comfortable. Because, again, of the close relationship between bad doctrines and understandings of sin and comfort. That's the threat. That's the problem with, with thorns. Last uh, soil type here is good soil. Verse 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So this is the good soil type. And Jesus says they actually have a root that goes deep. The seed, the seed goes deep and it bears fruits in different ways in people's life. The point is not the amount of fruit as we see here. It's just that fruit is born. What is bearing fruit, to be clear? Biblically, it's used elsewhere as well just to refer to evidence that a person is saved. Uh, good deeds that flow from God's grace. 
Galatians 5 is, is big on this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which just means that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a sinner's heart, it, it woos him or her to Christ, to the cross, to believe. And then he is also the Spirit, the product of all of our good deeds. It's a lot of grace in that. So the gospel isn't you're saved and it's up to you to be a good person after that. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you're raised from the dead and given new life. You're forgiven and the Holy Spirit will reside in you and produce all of your good deeds from here until you die. They're from him. So none can boast. They're all from him. So they're fruits of the spirit, not fruits of the person, not fruits of the individual. They're fruits of the spirit of God that reside in, in a person's heart. So someone that really gets that gospel then gets that whole counsel of scripture gospel, not just, a, not just the one angle on it, which is still a good angle, but not just the forgiveness angle, but the empowerment angle, that we actually get good deeds. They flow from the cross as well. He's created them beforehand, Ephesians 2.10 says, for us to walk in. All right, so here's the point to all this first side, this human side of this. There are always different responses to the sowing of the word of the gospel among people, like there is happening today here in this very room. Just like a farmer randomly casting seed to different soil types uh, and that seed either bearing fruit or not, uh, so when it goes forth, some of you have seen this because you've been involved in evangelism and others of you haven't, have just seen this personally in your life. But whatever the case, that's always what happens. And it's Jesus, it happens for Christ as well. He casts seed and he's rejected a lot. And people hear a teaching and they'll leave and never follow him again or they plot to kill him. And some actually allow that root to go deep and, and follow it and believe he actually is the son of God. He actually is the, dead, the death slayer and the sin slayer and the Satan slayer. And they believe. So that's the one piece. There's always different responses. And, it, and what this is doing then is it's a call then to examine ourselves spiritually, to test ourselves, and to consider the threats. Are we actually in the faith? And how are these threats at work in our life? So Satan, persecution, trial, emotionalism, and comfort, and you could go on. But especially those, those five things. Those are always against us. Uh, even if we are that fourth soil type, by God's grace, uh, those things will always, we can always have that semblance of thorny faith and rocky soil faith that has to be addressed. And so the scripture in the New Testament constantly encourages the church, look at your heart. Maybe you've never done that before. Test your, examine your heart. What do you actually believe about Jesus Christ? Have you just been actually just hearing about him? but never done anything with that information? Have you ever put that root deep into the soil and said, I'm receiving him. I'm putting all my chips in on Jesus. He's the only life raft. There's none other. I'm clinging to him to be saved and, and, and not myself, not another God, not another philosophy, worldview, nothing. He's it. He's the only way to God the Father. He's the only way back into God's presence. So, so big time differences there. We have to ask ourselves and test ourselves and examine ourselves in accordance with, uh, with the parable. Because according to Christ, a lot will hear and not receive. Some will look Christian for a while, but not truly embrace Jesus. But the four things we need here are uh, all, all crucial according to Matthew 13. We got to hear. We have to understand. We have to receive it, put that root deep, and then persevere in the gospel as well. All four have to occur to be a true Christian all throughout our days and be saved in the end. We have to hear. God loves us. He died for our sins. We have to understand that concept biblically. We have to receive it. John 1, 12 and 13, we talked about before. Put that root deep. Then persevere. Keep going in the faith. So the Bible is much more concerned about your faith today, what you do with Jesus today, than what you did 10 years ago. It does talk about past conversion for sure, but a lot of the exhortations in the New Testament are concerned about, what about today? 
What are you doing right now? And speaking to churches, to Christians, examine yourself. Do you believe today? Freshly come to the cross and, and absorb and take in and partake of the gospel of Christ afresh and make it, make it that spiritual food for yourself. So, so this is the way to your side. This is the human side. This is the side that says, consider these threats. And some of you guys even today, I've been praying for you all week and myself this week, are confronted with the word of God today in this just to think practically about and be honest and humble as we look at our souls. Where are we here with, with Christ? I mean, some of you might be thinking in regards to the rocky soil, someone walked through those doors with a gun and asked people to stand up who profess Christ and believe he's the son of God and start shooting people, you wouldn't stand. Death, or death for you is not worth it. You value your life and comfort over the ultimate call uh, to die. And you, don't, you do value your life. The Bible says don't value your life, even hate yourself in place of the gospel, uh, but that's not where you are. And you, you're, you understand the gospel to a degree, but that root is very shallow. And so when trial comes in, you're scorched immediately. And you, it says here, immediately you will fall away. So that's probably where some of you are today as well. Or it could be a, could be a comfort thing. You know, for some of you, it's just you feel the thorns of the world and riches and comfort messing with your understanding of sin and your, and your placement before God, and it's choking you. And it's, for, for you, it's just not allowing you to mature at all. And it's choking life. The choking, that, the joy you had initially in the gospel, it's choking life out of you, and comfort is still up here. Anything else is still up here uh, besides Christ himself. And some of you are just like, I know I'm the hard path. I, I, I know I've never put root down. I'm still checking out Christianity. I, I've, I've heard the gospel a lot, but I've never truly received that in my life. And, you know, the, the, the encouragement for you, in one sense, it's simpler but more severe, is the birds are flocking to that seed. So to whatever degree today, you kind of, the gospel kind of matters to you, or whenever you're presented the gospel to you, it kind of matters in that moment. When that seed's snatched away, like when you leave here probably, if you're still the hard path, it won't matter as much. Something else will distract you and make you think about something else, and you'll be a hard path, and you'll forget everything. That's a hard path type existence. But, and some of you are good soil, but are just still threatened by these things. doesn't mean you're not saved to be experiencing some of the rocky soil, thorny type things, but it just means you're, you're threatened still. But this, this, is the, this is the type of stuff we've got to think about. And just put yourself in those situations. Where are you honestly? And the call, of course, is to the last soil type. But all, here's the thing. Only God gets us there. And this is why I want us to move from looking so much at the, only at the heart and the soil types to God to Jesus. We've got to move to the divine side. The trajectory of this passage is from these soil types to the sower because this is the parable of the sower, not the parable of the soil types. It's very crucial that we understand that. So let's move now from all of that, the human stuff. Let's move to this divine. Let's twist the diamond in the light here a little bit and get a fresh angle on this, on this parable that shows off a Savior and adore him for it. So I've got three things here they're going to help us do that. Move from the heart, focusing too much on the heart. It's good to focus some, of course. Talked about that. But to Christ. The first is, Jesus is the sower of the passage. He says in verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. Again, this is a, don't miss the obvious. This is the glaringly obvious but easily missable thing in this parable. Is that Jesus is, God is, a farmer. He's the sower and he's casting the seed of his grace among people. He did not have to do that. God could have let, let us all burn and all stay away from him for eternity, but he, he, in love, committed to us, his creation, he walked among us and sowed the seeds of, I love you, and I'm going to die in your place for your sins, even death on a cross. That's, that's God's kingdom. 
I'm going to destroy your enemies of sin and death when I do it. I'm going to bring you back to myself when I do it. I'm sowing this out among people. He's speaking to us. Maybe you never thought about God as that type of God. He's not aloof. He's way more active in your life and in the world than you ever thought. How do we know? Look at Christ. He became one of us to walk among us and ultimately die as one of us before God the Father as an advocate, as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. The Bible says, talk about love. There it is. You want to talk about love? That's love. You want to talk about sacrifice and mercy and grace and generosity? That's where you look. There is no greater form of any of that than the cross. That's what he thinks of us. In this parable, he's a loving farmer sowing seed. That's what we get. He speaks to us. He loves us. He shows grace to us. It's one of those great dramatic threads in the Bible. I mean, I mean think about it in these terms. If we just have soil, we, we don't have any life. We could be the best soil in the world. I just talked to my, some of you guys know my dad. He's a horticulturist. I have no one else to back this up with or, or anything except my dad. So he's the guy. If he's wrong, it's on him. Uh, but apparently, Farmington, Minnesota, you guys know Farmington just south of here, what, 45 minutes or so, half hour, whatever it is, has the best soil in the world. You guys know that? It's the deepest uh, pack of topsoil anywhere on the planet. Go figure. Farmington. I guess it makes sense. We'd farm things there. But anyway, so we'll just say one of the top. If it's not the top, I'll just say one of the top to kind of cover my bases there. Uh, but anyway, it's like uh, you could have the best topsoil uh, ever. And if, it's, if, if there's no farmer to cast a seed, if there's not something outside the soil to come to the soil and plant well, it will just sit there. And it will bear as much fruit as the hardest of paths in the world. This much. Zero. Right? It's not ultimately about the soil. It's about the farmer. This is the parable of the sower. This is a parable of the sower coming to be a really good planter and a really good farmer and the bringer, bringer of life to dead things, which is what God is acclaimed for all throughout Scripture. He would just get it in an agrarian type manner. Relatedly, Jesus softens hard path like hearts. In Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament, looking ahead to Christ, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a new heart of flesh. Notice all, everything's on God here. He's saying, I'm going to come into the world through my son, and this is going to characterize my ministry. One of the many things that's going to characterize my ministry is this. I'm going to take hearts of stone, and I'm going to make them hearts of flesh. I'm not going to teach people how to do that themselves. I'm not going to say, here's how you make your heart softer. I'm going to actually make them soft. I, by grace, am going to say, this is where the Bible screams from a special vantage point, God saves, we don't. We're saved by grace. God's grace, through faith, our faith and trust in that, but we're saved by grace, not by our righteousness, not by our awesomeness, not by our works. God does everything. But here, I love this and how it relates to Matthew 13 because here it's saying, if, if the point here in the parable on the bottom is the heart, if the heart's in focus, if the heart is the soil types, we're all the hard path. We're all the rocky soil. That's what we're born into. The Bible is clear. He's got to cultivate it. He's got to make it receptive to the gospel or we'll never, we'll never embrace it. He's got to do that. He, by grace, we come to him. So this is where this becomes very, very, very freeing and, and much more sower-focused rather than soil-focused because we all have that tendency towards being 
hard-hearted. But God is a master at making hard hearts soft. He just does it all the time. Done it for most of you in this room. He's done it. He has done it. He loves you in that. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and through Christ, what he did for you on the cross, that's part of the river that flows from the headwaters of that cross is that. He makes us like that. and He, make, he cultivates that heart to make it receptive. So again, we're just confronted with God does everything. God by grace saves. God makes these hard things like paths uh, softer. Finally, Jesus is the ultimate seed that is cast to die and then bring life. John 12, 24, uh, Jesus speaking about himself and his ultimate, his uh, to come death. He hasn't quite gone to the cross yet, but speaking ahead to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's speaking about himself. He's saying, I'm the ultimate seed. And actually, biblically, by the way, when seed is talked about across the Testaments, ultimately it's Christ that is that ultimate seed. So it's not just here, but like Galatians 3 is big on this. Other parts of the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul talks about this, is the ultimate seed of, of Abraham, the ultimate one who's going to come into the world and bless the nations, it's always Christ. So, but here it picks up on it too in John 12. Jesus says, unless a seed falls off the plant, dies, falls, and goes to the ground and produces a plant, it just remains alone right, on that plant. So he basically saying, unless I go and die, the fruit of salvation will not be born in anybody. I will just remain alone as that seed. It, it, that's the only way to be saved. There's no other way. It, he'll remain, the seed will remain alone. But unless, if he does go, if he does die on the cross for our sins and raise again, the fruit, he'll, he'll be raised and us with him. So to go back to Matthew 13, this is just awesome. To bring, to weave in John 12 into Matthew 13 is to say, we talked about this before, he's sowing the gospel. And in more, in more uh, precise terms, he's sowing himself. He's the seed. Isn't this just great how much this is all outside of us? If we're just soil, we're just sitting there. But this is all, everything here, like the sower, the farmer, this, it's all objective to us. The seed, God has to come and from outside of us, apart from the soil, and be the one to implant, implant this. Jesus Christ himself gives us life, and he does that by dying in our place. He's that ultimate, ultimate seed. So he's that active, life-giving agent here that we have to bend the knee to. So here's what I want to close to recap this. He who has ears, let him hear. I love, I love that. Just saying, if you have ears, hear this. This is, extreme, this is the most important thing you'll ever hear in your life because it pertains to God and the gospel, how to be saved, how to live forever. He who has ears, let him hear. The human side of this first, yes, Look to the soil of your own heart. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He says this to Christians. Make sure you're in. Make sure you believe the right things about Jesus. Do that in community together. It's a big part of church is doing this on a regular basis uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, but w- you know, with your pastor, with uh, your friends, with a community group, smaller group settings, do this. Examine yourself. What am I believing about Christ? Be on the receiving end and the giving end of the gospel of grace continually. So do that and then test yourselves. What soil type are you? We've talked about that before. But then move and traject ahead to the divine side. Look to the sower and rejoice in him. Look to the seed who fell and died in your place for your sins and bore life in you. Don't look too much to the soil as to the Savior. That's the irony here. If you want the good soil type, if you want to be the fourth, number four soil type here, don't Look to the heart. Look to the one who can soften the heart. When you look to the Savior and the ultimate seed, that's what actually makes your heart cultivated. So 
If we're too, consu- too inward focused and too consumed on our heart, it's just a type of work. And it just, it'll, it'll kill us. It'll put us in a straitjacket pretty quick because we'll always think, Am I, do I really have the, the right soul type or not? And we'll consume our minds with it and we'll always be questioning our salvation. But if you look outside of us to the sower, the farmer, the seed, as something given, not earned, and we know it's given because the Bible teaches that. It's being given here but just today through song, through the word. It's clear the Bible says, I love you, God says to us. I've died for you. I'm bearing much fruit. I'm giving you eternal life. So we know he loves us because we hear that all the time, and we're hearing it even today and singing about it today. So no matter, no matter where you guys are, this final encouraging thing for you. Look to the sower. Jesus died for hard-pathed hearts. You might feel a million miles from him. You might feel like, I've wrestled for decades with this issue. I've just never re- I can never really receive uh, the cross. I can never re- I've never really understood it. And I feel like the birds are swarming. Uh, you might be on the, that end somewhere in the middle. Wherever you are, Jesus died for the sin of unbelief. It's one, of, it's one of the sins, rejecting him, being a rebel. He died for that. Just come to the cross empty-handed. You want to be this last soul? You want to get into the kingdom of God? You want to bear fruit to the glory of God and be saved and have eternal life? Come empty-handed to the cross and say, God, I can't make my hard path heart soft. But I know your word here, at least in this one place, I can cling to that and say, but here it says that you are a master at that. Please soften my heart. Cultivate it, fertilize it, till it. Make it able to receive what we just heard about today and receive your word for what it is on its terms and believe that Jesus is that only way back to God, the only way to be saved. That's the seed of salvation. It's Christ himself. He's moving towards you. He's sowing this into your life even today. That's what he thinks of you. Uh, receive it. Wherever you are, whatever path you align with, know that he has died for all those things and he is welcoming you afresh uh, back to him. So repent, believe, come to him for the first time today or thousandth. He loves you and he's given himself for your sins. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for this passage and what it tells us about the gospel. Uh, Thank you for all this agrarian metaphor, for all this great biblical imagery that ties in with the greater story Uh, and telling us that you are the great sower, the great cultivator. You are the seed. We're just the soil. And all all we can really do is is pray to you, uh, the farmer, the sower, the one who all over the scriptures works with his hands in the soil to create Adam and really to create fruit, to work in this new salvific way as well, a new creational type idea here in the New Testament. You're creating again. You're bearing fruit, but it's all from you. So save us, raise us from the dead. Give us the fruit of your spirit inside of us. That, that seed that um, has to die, to fall to the earth and die, and then it can bear fruit, give us a seed of Christ in our hearts. Pray it would grow and change our lives and give us a message to a dead and dying world. God, you save us by grace. You've died in our place. It's all about you today. I pray that we would respond in thanks that you're the Lord of the harvest and uh, that today if we believe, uh, we are the wheat. We're, we're part of the people that have, been, that have grown and, and borne this fruit. So I uh, pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.